Take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 this morning. For children's church this morning, if you're in first through sixth grade, you can slip out. I think those older ones know that as well. They'll be rehearsing for a portion of the service their musical number for Christmas. It's always fun to see the different testimonies and song that uh, are a blessing around here during Christmas time. Matthew chapter 2. God is on a mission to restore his fallen people to the likeness of himself, to the praise of his glory. That's what God is doing. That mission began with the coming of Christ in a manger, and God used different people, different characters along the way in order to accomplish that plan. He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. We're in the process of examining these different characters that God chose to use. We last week looked at the commoners, Mary and Joseph, those who were of low income, common, low educated, just wanted to serve the Lord. And this morning, we look at what would be the polar opposite of that. Rich, wealthy, highly educated, magi from afar. Matthew chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 1, if you want to look there with me. Scripture records, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where, is, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceeding with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way God I pray that you would give insight and illumination as we look into your word this morning may we better understand what happened 2,000 years ago and let's better know your character and worship you in light of it in your name we pray amen Matthew's main purpose in writing his gospel is to prove that Jesus is the promised king. He's the one who was promised from the Old Testament. He's the king of Israel. And he has that by birthright and by God right, that God has said so. 
And so you have Matthew opening up his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, thus proving that Jesus was born in the line of kings, in the line of David. And here in our, in our passage before us this morning, what we have is we have Matthew once again proving that Jesus is king by showing that all others, every person, no matter their status, no matter their location, must come to bow before him and worship him as the promised king. We see this evidenced in the question that the Magi ask, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? I mentioned the wise men briefly in a sermon last year in preaching through Matthew, and there was a lot of interest that was peaked through that. I received a lot of questions, a lot of comments, so I thought it would be appropriate for us to pause and to spend an entire morning looking at what God records about who the Magi were and their role, the role they played in redemption's story. But before we can look at the role they played, we first need to look at two introductory um, kind of details. One would be the timing of the event that the Magi came, and secondly, the identity of who these Magi were. These random men showing up from the east walking into Jerusalem and asking people as if everybody should know, where is the child king? So let's look at the timing first. It's important in our theology and in our Bible knowledge that we get our information of what the Bible teaches, what the Bible says, from the Bible, and not from Hallmark cards, not from uh, cartoons especially, and even not from any visual representations of Scripture that we have available to us today. If God would have wanted us to know what exactly what Jesus looked like, Jesus would have come in the time of television. But he didn't. He came in the time of the written word, and so therefore we need to make sure that we get our information from Scripture specifically. This text does not tell us exactly when the Magi came to visit Jesus, but we do know for sure when it wasn't. It was not when Jesus was born. Specifically, when the shepherds appeared. Some people think that that when Jesus was born, that God had prepared a processional to welcome him into this world, and you had Mary and Joseph, and then the animals lined up to come by and give their, you know, moos or nays or whatever and bow, and, and then next to them you had the, 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 the three kings who just happened to show up in their crowns and camels, and, and no one knows where they came from or who they are or what they're doing, but they're just behind the animals, and they come in, and they bow before the child in the manger, and then they disappear. When, of course, Scripture would say something totally different. As a side note, I've made mention before that if you have a nativity scene in your house, and some of you are already smiling because you know where I'm going with this, make sure you put the wise men off to the side somewhere. In fact, you'll see our nativity scene here at church. We have Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Not all three of them lying in a manger, as some people would suggest in the way they word it, but just the baby lying in the manger. And the Magi are still far off, just planning their journey to Jerusalem, and so we've placed them in Ben's office way in the far east as they still prepare their journey. In our house, we have a, a, our, our nativity scene set up, and the Magi are over on the other side of the desk 
And I jokingly texted somebody in our church family who I have a running joke about this with and said, is this far enough? Because the Magi were not at the manger scene. How do we know that, Pastor Joe? Well, first of all, we have some clues in the text. Verse 1 tells us, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in verse 1. It also tells us that this was in the days of Herod the king. In verse 11, we see that Mary and Joseph have transitioned from uh, the area with the animals in which Jesus was born into a house, very specific word, a dwelling place. In verse 11, a more permanent dwelling place. They were still in Bethlehem. Maybe Joseph discovered that Work was easier to come by in Bethlehem than Nazareth. As a carpenter, we don't know. We just know that they're still in Bethlehem. They're located in a house. And they came in and they find the child with his mother, Mary. We also see that the wise men tell Herod the timing of this aerial phenomenon that they saw in the sky referenced in your scriptures as a star. It's just a generic word for lights in the sky. And based on that timing, Herod then goes, beginning in verse 16, as we'll look at next week, and he kills specifically children that are two years old and younger. And so probably Jesus was either one year old or two years old at this time. Who then were these wise men? Clarification on the timing of their appearing. Who were they? You know, if Matthew wanted us to know their specific identities, he would have given that to us. Sometime in church history, these wise men were given names. They were given names of kings from the east. More than likely, that is not the case. But, but if Matthew wanted us to know their names, he'd give them. He just gives us some specific information about them that I think if we dig a little bit deeper, we may find some fascinating information that I think is very applicable for us today. I'll be an encouragement to you. How many were there? We don't know. There were three gifts. We do know they're talked about in the plural, so there were at least two. There don't have to be three. If my wife gives me three gifts on Christmas and I tell you that I received three gifts from my wife, you don't automatically assume I have three wives. And so we don't need to automatically assume that just because there were three gifts given that there were three wise men, three magi that came. More than likely, there were far more than that. What did they look like? I don't know. Uh, did they have giant flowing robes riding on camels? Your guess is as good as mine, okay? But where did they come from? The word translated in your scripture, magi, which if you have a modern uh, translation, it's either translated wise men for you or magi there, is the Greek word magi. It's where we get our word magic from. These men were students of the stars. They had kind of combined both astrology and theology to come to the understanding that God revealed his plan of what was going to happen in the future through the stars. And so they would study the stars and the patterns of the stars and had come to the conclusion that God would reveal his plan in the stars and that as they came to a greater knowledge of the movement of the stars, thus God would unlock what was happening in the future is who these magi were. Where did they come from? Well, they came from the east. There's a lot east of Palestine. 
We know they came from somewhere east of Jerusalem, probably the far east of Jerusalem. In this time period, if you were to read historical records, if people referred to that which is east of Jerusalem, that which is east of Palestine, often it was referring to Babylon. So that would be a probable explanation of the time for many reasons. But if Matthew wanted us to know more about where they came from, he would, he would have told us. But I think, I think we can deduce a couple things if we pay very close attention and we ask good questions. You know, most Bible study boils down to asking good questions. Like, how did these magi know who to ask for? Why did they think he would be an anointed one, a king? Verse 2 is their question. Look, let's read it, their question very carefully. Look down in Scripture. We, we want to pay attention to each specific word in Scripture as even the, the, the very words and the tenses of the words are inspired by God as we find out by, from Jesus in the Gospels. Verse 2 records their question. Where? So they knew about where he would be, but not the exact location. Where is he who has been born... King of the Jews. There's a lot of information packed in that one statement. For you, you may have just glanced over that, but somehow they knew they were coming to worship a baby who had just been born and that he would assume authority and control over a specific group of people. That's a lot of information for these magi who just happened to come in from the east. It's also interesting that they didn't go straight to Herod. It's almost as if they assumed that everyone in Jerusalem knew that this baby had been born. And so as they enter into Jerusalem and they ask this question, they start asking everybody who's there, where's the baby king? Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? So much so that it trickled all the way up to Herod. So when Herod heard it, he became greatly disturbed and all of Jerusalem disturbed with him. They didn't just walk into Herod's court and say, you know, where's the king of the Jews? I mean, this was news around town. Everybody knew about the weirdos on the camels, you know? Everybody knew what was happening. And everybody was disturbed. One commentator put it this way. The words they used were specific. Notice they say, born king. Not born to be king. As should have been said. They're talking about what he is. Not what he will be. Very specifically. Not the child who will one day serve as king when it's his turn. But the child who is the king based on his identity. I want to show you something interesting about who I believe. The more I've studied this, it began as a guess, turned into a little bit of more confidence. And now I'm convinced of who these magi were. You can write this down. We don't have time to turn there this morning. But if you were to turn back, excuse me, to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48, you'd find something very interesting. And that is 
that Daniel was taken away to Babylon. You remember the story of Daniel, captured. And in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And after Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, Daniel interprets the dream for him. And in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48, the scripture says something very interesting. It records this. Then, after Daniel had revealed that he possessed supernatural wisdom from God, given from God, Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. Daniel 2.48. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the magi of Babylon, all the wise men. So now you have Daniel in Babylon because of the great wisdom in which he's given, serving as the chief wise man in Babylon. As you continue to read Daniel's account that he's written through the inspiration of Scripture, you recognize that this happened 500 years before Christ. So now we have Daniel chief magi in Babylon, 500 years before Christ, receiving the inspired word of God and writing down prophecies. And as Daniel writes down his prophecies in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel begins to talk about his 70 weeks. And as Daniel writes the 70 weeks of Daniel as they're known, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, He says that somewhere between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, depending, we're not going to go into all the prophecy stuff this morning except for this one little slice, okay? He says some some time in that time period, 70 periods of seven, somewhere between 483 and 490 years later, what does he record in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25? that there would be one born in Jerusalem who was the anointed one to serve as king. It's fascinating, isn't it? So we have the chief wise man in Babylon, 493 years before Christ, prophesying and writing to the other wise men, whose writings were held as part of the Magi's writings in Babylon, that there would be one who would be born king of the Jews. And so these wise men for the next 500 years dedicated themselves to reading the writings of the Magi. Through those 480 years, I believe that the orthodox beliefs of Daniel and the syncretism syncretism happened between the, the, the beliefs of Daniel and the pagan beliefs of Babylon. And so you end up with these hybrid Magi who both believe in the God of heaven and also believe uh, in the synchronism of of their false belief system in, in astrology. And you end up with these Magi who are looking at the stars, expecting God to reveal what is happening, knowing and believing the prophecies of Daniel. Something big is coming. They didn't just walk out their front door And be like, whoa, that's a weird looking star. They knew to look west. As they're looking, knowing the timing was drawing near. Expecting God's word to be fulfilled. Reading and believing the writings of Daniel. 
looking in that direction as they studied and studied what happens the night the Christ child is born. The angels appear to a group of shepherds and what is recorded? The glory of the Lord shone all around them. I believe these magi were looking for the star and the glory of the Lord was revealed in the sky and they said, there it is. There it is. The anointed one that we've been looking for is here. And so they begin to pack their bags. They begin to get everything in order and they set off on their journey which would take them to find this anointed one. To worship the one who had fulfilled the writings they had been reading. Understanding their identity helps us understand, I, I gave you some words yesterday, for Joseph, or last week, for Joseph and Mary. I'd like to give you four words this morning that we can anchor into understanding the role that these magi play in, in God's story of reconciliation, of God's story of redemption. And the first word I want to give you is the word faith. Friends, they knew Scripture and they believed Scripture. They knew Daniel. They came with specific information. They didn't come and say, hey, we saw the fireworks. What happened? Tell us. You guys got something big going on. There's a party going on here somewhere. We're just trying to figure out what it is. That's not what they said. They came with specific information. Where is he? We know he's around here somewhere. Because he's the anointed one to rule over and reign over the Jews. And this is Jerusalem. So where is he? Does anybody know where he is? He's born king. He's the anointed one. And we've come to worship him. Faith. Friends, they knew the Bible well. They believed it and they expected it to be fulfilled. They took the scripture at its word. And they simply believed it. It's evidenced in their statement of faith. Where is he? Not is he here, but where is he? They go to people in Jerusalem. They're like, what are you talking about? Where is he? I don't don't know what you're talking about. Where is he? I don't know. And they keep going person to person to person, not doubting themselves, not doubting what happened until they got the answer. Where is he? Friend, let me ask you a question. How different would your life be if you approach scripture this way. Not if, but when. If we really believed that Jesus was going to return at any moment and conquer sin. If we really believed that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, that the chains of sin have been broken, that you don't have to sin, that sin has no more power over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace, and you've been transplanted into the kingdom of his dear son, That everything that you do on this earth matters for eternity. That every sacrifice for Christ on this earth will be rewarded in the new heavens and the new earth. And you may not know all the details of everything, and neither did they, but they were confident in what they knew. So I'd like to ask you this morning, friend, are you confident in what Scripture says? In order to be confident in the truths of Scripture, you have to know the truths of scripture so are you reading your bible 
Do you know what the Bible says? Do you believe what the Bible says? If you're here this morning, you've never done this, I'd like to encourage you to come to a point in your life where before God, you make a commitment and you say, God, here's, here's what I'm committing to you, that when you say something, I will believe it and I will obey it. And I don't know what that means. But when truth comes, I'm going to be swift to hear, I'm going to be slow to argue, and I'm going to be slow to get angry. Show, show me your word. There's nothing I need to be afraid of. There's nothing that I need to excuse away. Know the word and simply believe it and be confident in what Scripture says. Faith. Secondly, worship. Worship. Look at verse 11 with me. We'll dig more deeply into the contrast between the wise men and Herod next week. Again, just focusing on these magi and the role they play. Verse 11 says, Going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. These magi understood the gravity of what was happening. They understood that this king was different than every other king. When they went into Herod's court, they didn't fall down and worship Herod, even though they had an audience with the king who was reigning over Jerusalem. But when they walk into the house with the Christ child, what is their response? They worship. All paths of God's revelation lead to the worship of Jesus. Think of every unique way in which God revealed himself in the Advent story. And what was the end goal of every single revelation? The worship of Jesus. We read about it this morning. Mary walks into Elizabeth's house. John the Baptist prophesies, this is the one. And what does Elizabeth do? Blessed is the mother of my Lord. To reveal not only who Mary is, but who the baby is that she's carrying. Because all revelation leads to the worship of Jesus. As you read the scriptures to get to know God, your heart is consistently driven to worship. And this worship is your whole being. It's not just something that you do on Sunday. It's everything about you. Look at verse 10. It includes their emotions. What happens when they see this star, when the glory of the Lord reappears before them, and this glory of the Lord that led the the, the, the children of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land, appears before the Magi and leads them through the streets of Jerusalem to Bethlehem, to the house of Christ. And what's their response when this happens in verse 10? They rejoiced with exceeding great joy because worship includes your emotions. Friends, I think sometimes we're so afraid that we're going to go too far that we forget that worship includes our emotions. Some of you are like, I'm happy. Then tell your face because it missed the memo, right? That when we sing and when we worship, we should worship with joy. I guarantee you they didn't hide that. God's glory appears. They're like, hey, look, it's God's glory. 
Hark the herald angels sing. We're talking about angels proclaiming the gospel. Don't be afraid to get excited about truth. Because worship does involve your emotions. Can they be taken too far? Yes. Because worship also involves humility. But don't be so scared. I, 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 I don't think at community we are in danger of taking this too far. Okay? I don't think so. Don't be afraid to get excited about what God is doing. To get excited about singing the truths of Scripture. That when you're reading your Bible and, and you see the glory of the Lord, don't be afraid to tell somebody. Don't be afraid to say, you know what I read in my Bible this morning? And to share them that truth and say, isn't that amazing? To get excited about what God is doing. I think it helps us to, to pause for a minute to clarify what exactly worship is. What is worship? I'll give you my definition. It's not inspired. You can change it if you want. I checked it with Pastor Ben, so I know it's right. But biblical worship, I know I give him a hard time, I'm sorry, but biblical worship is a response of humble and reverent devotion before God. And it's based on his word. I read several different definitions and several different articles and, and, and chapters on worship this week to try to get kind of an overarching concept of what worship, worship is. Like, what are, we, what are we doing together? We worship individually and as families all throughout the week, divided up all over South Bend and, and Niles and the whole Michigan area, right? North and south, east and west. And then on Sunday, we come together to do it together. So what do we do together? We, we respond. It's an action. That if you are not acting in some way, you're not worshiping. Worship is a response of a humble and reverent devotion. It's humble. Worship, in order to worship, you have to recognize that you're worshiping something bigger than you. That you're aligning under the King of Kings. You're aligning under the Lord of Lords. What did the, the, the Magi do when they came? They fell down in worship. And friends, I got news for you. Worship affects all of you. And I know some of you don't do the whole hand-raising thing or whatever, and that's fine. But if you can sing some of these hymns with a scowl on your face, standing at attention, something is wrong. My favorite hymn right now is Christ, my, my hope in life and death. And, and almost every morning I play it. And sometimes you just can't help but just, just yell out or sing at the top of your lungs, right? Because it affects you. It's a response, and it drives you to humility. There are ways that you can respond in, in pride to gain attention to yourself. And there are ways that you can respond in a, in a humble way to say, God, you have all of me. When was the last time... You are so overwhelmed in your prayer life that you have an audience with God that you laid out on the floor, face down, 
Not because God would like you more or hear your prayers more, but because you were overwhelmed with the fact that the God who created this world with his words was listening to you. And you're just overwhelmed in worship. And you hit your knees or you cried out at the top of your voice. And you just say, God, you have all of me. I I believe what I'm saying. It's affecting me. I'm responding in humility, but it must be reverent. It's not a flippant act to be taken lightly. Jesus isn't the big man upstairs. He isn't some divine vending machine that will give you anything you want if you just mean it enough. He's a God of holiness and wrath, but a God of mercy and love. And so we come before him reverently as we enter into an audience with God because, friends, when you sing here, you are entering into communion with God and you're joining the audience of heaven. You think about that. Some of you will have far better voices in heaven, but we won't go there. But you still sing to the top of your voice because you're called to make a joyful noise before the Lord. And so, you know, we do, we make noise and we sing and we do it reverently because we're singing and joining the choirs of heaven and worshiping God. It's an act of devotion. It's a response of humble and reverent devotion. That means that you are all in. That you are wholeheartedly devoted to one God And you come before him wholeheartedly. But friends, it's based on his word. It's based on his word. And this is so important because you can only worship a God accurately if you know him and you know what he requires. God has told us in his word how to worship him. And scripture reveals who this God is. And so as you grow in your knowledge of the character of God through the word, so your worship deepens and grows. I want you to notice as they worship in verse 11, the object of their worship. They fell down and worshiped him. There were at least two people there. Joseph gets overlooked. Maybe he was at work. We don't know. But we know for sure Mary and the child were there, and I think it, I know it's an important detail because under the, inspiration of scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Scripture records that Mary and the baby were there, and they bowed down, and they worshipped one, not both. They worshipped him. They came seeking the anointed one prophesied in scripture and when they got there they found the mother of Jesus and they found Jesus and they only worshipped one of them. Can I ask you a question this morning, friend? Maybe you're here and you're visiting with us 
this is kind of new for you. Maybe you're here and you've been to church a couple times, but, but you're seeking truth. And you're seeking truth because, it, because in your heart something is pulling you in. Because no man seeks after God unless God works in him first. And so you're here this morning and you're asking the question, where can I find the answers to what I'm seeking? The wise men came actively seeking as a result of God revealing himself. They actively sought the Christ child and they sought and they sought and they sought. And when they came, they worshiped. And if you are here and God is pulling at your heart and you're seeking God, God says in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13, if you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with your heart. That means if you really want to know is what that means. Alistair Begg said it this way, God does not respond to intellectual arrogance, but he will respond to intellectual integrity. That means you're asking because you actually want to know. We all have asked questions that we don't really want an answer for. It's just a protest, you know. But for the person who asks a question for the purpose of knowing who God is, God reveals himself through his word. And so if you're here this morning and you're seeking because God is drawing you, can I give you the answer to what you're seeking for? And it's the, one, it's the truth that Jesus is the only one worthy of worship. You seek him and you'll find him. And you enter before God And you see Christ through the pages of Scripture. And the only proper response from any person is to bow in worship and to humbly align under the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Magi hold a position in this plan of reconciliation by showing us faith, by revealing to us what true worship is. And also showing us that worshiping and following God requires sacrifice. These gifts have always fascinated me. As the Magi come from the far east and they bring their own possessions. They didn't take up an offering along the way. In Babylon, they didn't go and say, hey, we're going to see the king. If you want to give some gold, here's your bucket. If you want to give some frankincense, here's your bucket. And if you want to get some myrrh, here's your bucket. And then after six months, they gather everything that's been donated and they bring it as an offering before Christ. That's not what's happening here. If you read carefully, verse 11, then opening their treasures, it's their own possessions. As they've examined in their life what should be offered as a sacrifice, as a gift to God. And then they give. Why? Because following Christ always costs you something. There was a false gospel that says when you follow Christ, you're going to get everything. But Jesus records something very different. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 57, people were going along the road. Someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head because it may cost you comfort in this life when you follow Christ. He goes on to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You know what he's saying? I've got a big inheritance coming my way. 
Oh, I'd love to give up everything for you as soon as I get my inheritance. And then I don't have to work anymore, right? It's like, you know what? I'll give God everything when I retire with a good pension and, and a full bank account, and then I'll give it all to God. And he says, no, no, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the way this works. You know what? I'll get saved after I understand everything about God. Well, friend, you can't understand Scripture without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll come to Jesus as long as Jesus gives me good stuff, right? As long as he gives me good health, as long as he gives me prosperity, as long as he gives me wealth, you show me that Jesus and I'll I'll accept that Jesus. No, because following Jesus may cost you comfort in this life. It may cost you financial prosperity. There are many who've come to Christ and lost. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, verse 61, yet another I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We have some dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are living that truth right now because following Christ has cost them family relationships. That stepping in and saying yes to Jesus meant saying no to family. That there will be some who will reject you. Earlier in that chapter, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That, friend, there's nothing that you can sacrifice on this earth that you will regret in eternity. You know, when we get to heaven... We're going to be able to spend all of eternity both in the present heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth with, with these magi, I believe. And, and I want to walk up to them and say, hey, do you regret giving that gold? I know it costs you. You think they regret it? Giving of their stores of frankincense and myrrh, which were so expensive in that day, both to prepare for burial. It would be like you saving up or having insurance so your kids don't have to, to pay for, for burial costs. And they're giving that up. All of it, I don't know, but at least some of it. Gold, their, their, their big bank accounts that they left with, here they leave at the feet of Christ. And you ask him, do you regret it? Do you regret leaving those gifts at the feet of Jesus? Friend, I won't be shocked if the reply you get is, oh, I wish I would have brought more. All sacrifices will be worth it when we see Christ. There is nothing you can give up on this earth that you will regret in eternity. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, we don't exactly know why those three Church history would say that gold was a sign that Jesus was the king. Frankincense was like a white gummy substance that was used in worship of deities. And so frankincense proving he was truly God. Myrrh was a powerful aromatic extract from, a, from the myrrh bush that was used to cover up the stench of a rotting corpse in a, in a, in a cave. 
Much like the ladies went to treat and wrap the body of Christ when they found him risen from the dead. And so myrrh was a substance used in that. And so myrrh signifying the death and burial of Christ, thus signifying his true humanity. And so you have the God, man, king. Is that the case? I don't know. But man, that preaches well, doesn't it? Truly God, truly man, he's the king. Gifts. Revealing the character of Jesus. I, I came across a, a quote from an old country preacher that I thought would be helpful this morning. I wish I could claim it as my own, but I can't. But I'll read it for you. It says, The wise men entered Jerusalem with the treasure of this world in their hands, and they left Bethlehem with the treasure of heaven in their hearts. What a precious picture sacrifice faith worship sacrifice and obedience is the last word this morning obedience do you think it was a light thing to go against Herod Herod told them with a false piety when you find him come tell me where he is so that I will go and worship him too they believed him I mean, who wouldn't want to worship the Messiah? And yet, an angel reveals the word of God in a dream to the Magi that Herod's piety was false. All words, no faith. And they chose to obey the voice of the Lord, even though it meant making enemies of the king. As we'll see next week, friends, Herod was a terrible person who often killed people just because he thought maybe they were going to do something against him in the future. And he had a reputation for being that way. And he was already angry. And then Herod finds out that these magi directly disobeyed his command. You think that's a it's something to be taken lightly? No, these wise men, look at verse 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. I'm sorry, let's, uh, let's go back to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way that their pattern of obedience and attentiveness to the word of God continued over and over and over again because these magi were obedient. They obeyed the voice of the Lord because following God requires obedience. What do the wise men reveal to us in this passage? So we've just kind of ticked through kind of with a microscope focusing on all their actions. And if we were to zoom out, we would ask the question, why, why is Matthew telling us all this? I mean, is he telling you just because it's, it's great storytelling, which it is, that it's an incredible event, which it is? What's his goal? What does, what does he want you to see? As the wise men ride off on their camels, back east across the desert and they walk away, what do you grasp? And it's this. All people are called to worship at the feet of Jesus. All people. Joseph, Mary, Herod, 
everybody in Jerusalem, the chief priests and scribes, and the wise men from far east, every human being on this planet is called to bow the knee to Christ. That's what Matthew wants you to see. He's the king worthy of your worship. He's the king worthy of your obedience. He's the king worthy of your sacrifice. And if you think, well, that may be true of someone else, well, my bank account's too big. Matthew says, no, 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 no. These magi from the east, well, my intellect is too high. No, they were the smartest of the smartest. They were the richest of the wealthy. They were the top 1% or whatever you want to say. And even they had to bow the knee to the child. What a, I don't know if I've said this often, but man, if heaven has, has like a DVR or something, we're going to rewind it to that moment and we're going to watch these magi coming in as a group looking at this two-year-old. And maybe with tears, they prostrate themselves on the ground and they pour out their gifts and they worship a child. Because, friend, if you're going to be reconciled to God, that's what he requires. He requires the recognition that Jesus Christ is fully God, truly God, truly man. And you will respond some way to that. Maybe you'll respond like the citizens in Jerusalem who were just indifferent. Where is the Christ child? I don't know. Where is the child born king of the Jews? I, I don't know. Making their way through, they were upset. All of Jerusalem was troubled. And then they moved on. Maybe you respond like the chief priests and the scribes. Oh, you know your Bible, but there's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, friend. There's a difference between knowing the truth and believing the truth. There's a difference between singing and worshiping. And so the chief priests and the scribes were like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we know where he's going to be born. And you can almost see the wise men, they're like, well, why are you still here? Oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. There's no reason to go over there. I mean, that's what it says, but I mean, is that really what it means? I mean, it's kind of illogical if you think about it. I mean, if you really think about it, why would a king be born in Bethlehem? And there are some other prophecies that we don't really know what to do with either. It also says he's going to be from Nazareth. How can that be true if he's from Bethlehem? I mean, if you read carefully, it also says he's going to be born of a virgin. Like, who does that? So we know it. Do you believe it, friend? Maybe you've been in church your whole life. And you've been resisting Jesus as your king. That you want life your way, not God's way. That you're fine to put on a good show in front of people, but when it's you at your house, you know all of these years you've been a fraud. Because if it was your turn to bow at the feet of a two-year-old in worship and sacrifice, you would hesitate and say, nah, maybe that's not for me. Maybe you're here and someone invited, invited you to church and your response is like Herod. You know what, I'll act it up while I'm here, but the truth is, 
no chance I'm going to bow at the feet of that child. In fact, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that never happens. But friend, will you be like the Magi who give us the picture that it's all people's responsibility to prostrate themselves at the feet of Jesus, to worship and obedience and sacrifice? Your acceptance of the gospel has nothing to do with your lineage. It has nothing to do with your training. It has nothing to do with some sort of predisposition towards God. Well, I'm just a nice person. Well, I grew up in a Christian family. Your acceptance of the gospel is totally dependent on God drawing you to himself and you placing your faith and trust in him alone for your salvation. And so Matthew calls you to bow before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because that's every person's responsibility to worship Jesus. Father, thank you so much for the clarity of Scripture and the truth of your word. What a beautiful picture of these wealthy magi who set aside their pride and set aside themselves and in humility bow in worship before the one who is born king. And this morning, may everyone here recognize the kingship and lordship of Christ. And may we set aside our pride and our expressive individualism and the things in this life which so commonly allure our eyes. And may we with a whole heart and a whole being cast ourselves at the feet of Christ, worshiping in obedience and sacrifice with a whole heart. God, if there's one here who's not a Christian and in a crowd of this size, we can only assume there is. Would you help them in this moment to recognize their need for salvation? May they in this moment recognize your rightful position as Lord and King. May you turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. May you breathe life into their dead soul. May you draw them to to yourself and give them faith, Father, please. And may they turn and place that faith and trust in an act of worship on you and you alone and find forgiveness from their sin. May they be reconciled to you. Friend, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, may I ask you to spend a moment of silent response and reflection this morning. Where has God placed his finger on your heart? If you're here and you're not a Christian, would you turn to Jesus? Would you come to him in faith and cast everything on the altar of Christ? May you bow in submission to your Lord and your King. Christian, do you take time to worship the one who is born King of the Jews? Grow in your knowledge of him so you can grow in your worship. However, God has placed his finger on your heart this morning. You respond quietly in your seats in this moment.